The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So for those of you who haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Genesis. Uh, at, at a minimum, we're going to go for the, through the first three chapters of Genesis because it is so foundational. It's actually the first three chapters in your English Bible for a reason. Because it lays the foundation of everything else that is to follow, including the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and including uh, the ministry of Christ, his salvific work, and how the world ends. So it's very appropriate that we look at Genesis 1 through 3. And as Christians, we need to know God's word. We need to know it thoroughly. And knowing Genesis 1 through 3 in detail will be very helpful, hopefully very edifying for you, and also very practical in terms of ministering to you. I've, we've been doing this for a few months now, going through the book of Genesis, the first chapter, got a lot of feedback from folks, got some good questions, got some hard questions. Actually got some questions that I couldn't answer. That's okay. We continue to study together. Also, I've had much feedback from people saying they're being blessed, they're learning, they're being reminded of just wonderful, blessed truths they hadn't thought about in quite some time. And, and that is the goal. And the main topic of Genesis chapter 1, or the main character, is God. So we're talking about our Creator, which is very important, truth about Him. And any time we are hearing we're being reminded of the truth about our God, about our Creator, about our Judge, about our Savior. This is a good thing. This feeds the soul. This refines the conscience and our mind. So these are all wonderful benefits of, of studying this chapter. We've already looked at the first four days of creation. Today we have the privilege of looking at day five of creation. So that's the title really of the sermon is day five and what God created on that day. Sermon says, day five, God creates the fish and the birds. Then I've got three main points there that I want to highlight as we go through the text. It's only four verses, uh, 20, 21, 22, and 23. Follow along as I read what Moses wrote down and said what happened on day four, the first week of creation, when Moses was not around, when no human being was around. This is God's version through the prophet Moses, written over 3,000 years ago, preserved for us, starting at verse 20 after day 4, verse 20, then. The next thing that happened, then, then, very important word, it's a very specific word, and this is telling us we are in a sequence here. We are in a, a story. It's actually real history. There's chronology here. One thing builds on the other. Then, then after the fourth day, then came the fifth day, immediately following. So the term is loaded. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. So let's go to your outline there. Notice I have three main points there where I'm just trying to summarize the amazing truths in these verses, even though it's four verses, there's 
it's inexhaustible in terms of the truth uh, that is revealed in God's Word, which is typical. So I probably won't get through half of what I really want to say this morning. So we'll just make a priority in terms of what the text has to say. God has already, starting at verse 1, created things in sequence, in order. It's logical. One of the main critiques of the Bible and Genesis, and Genesis chapter 1 in particular, from secular science, or even Christians who claim to be scientific, is that Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is not scientific. It contradicts science. I would say, not really. True, it has miraculous events, but miracles aren't contrary to true science. But if you just set aside the miraculous things and just look at the natural things as they are stated in Genesis chapter 1, I'd say it's very logical, it's very scientific. Starting with just the order of how God made things is very logical. The New Testament says specifically that God is a God of order. And you can see that in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account and how specific it is. This happened on day 1, this happened on day 2, this happened on day 3, and there's a logical sequence by really an infinite divine mind. And it's readily apparent when you follow what God created on any given day because just as simple as can be, God, at the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created on day 1 uh, the earth, material and the waters and everything else that he was going to use to form and fashion the rest of his creation. He created light on day one. He made an assessment on day one saying that it was formless and void on day one. It wasn't ready to be used. It wasn't ready to be occupied. People couldn't live on it. Animals couldn't live on it. Life could not be sustained, but all available materials were there. And God would spend the next five days of creation fashioning it preparing it like a master artist, making it suited and fit particularly for human life to excel to its potential on this planet that God was creating. And God knew that on day one, that it wasn't sufficient, it wasn't done, it wasn't there yet, he hadn't arrived, it wasn't completed on day one. And that's why his assessment is in verse two when he says it was tohu and bohu. It was formless, wasn't complete yet, and void. It was empty, there was, it was void, it was void of life. Things need to be filled up. There was nothing that was living in the waters. There was nothing that was living on the earth. There was nothing occupying the skies yet in the atmosphere. That was yet to come. So that's logical. That's orderly. And then from that point on, as he fashions his creation, he does it in a very logical and orderly manner because he never does things out of order. Everything makes sense. Everything that he creates is in preparation for the next thing. For example, so on day two, he creates the sky, which was absolutely necessary. And then on day three, after he has created the sky, then he creates land, land where things can roam and live and survive. And he creates the sea as well. And then after that, he creates the plants that can live on the land. So the order makes sense. The order is logical. After that, on day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. He begins to fill in the emptiness, the voidness. The sky has nothing, and then he puts the sun, the moon, and the stars in there. And those are going to help in terms of providing life for humans and animals. The, the sun, with the very life that it can give by virtue of the energy and the heat and everything else that the sun provides. Preparing life, really, ultimately, for humanity on earth. And so then we arrive on day five. God continues to prepare his creation, fashioning forming, 
filling in the void. And he's going to do that on day five by creating water animals and birds or things that fly. And they are able to survive in light of what he's already created and prepared for those creatures. So it's very logical, very scientific, consistent with a divine and perfect omniscient mind. That is our God. We read earlier Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, the Ten Commandments. Just by way of reminder, I want to say it again because we need to be reminded. Moses was considered a friend of God. Moses had access to God like nobody in history just about. He was called a prophet. He talked to God face to face. God would literally call him up on the mountain, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb and other places, and talk to him face to face and reveal his divine revelation to Moses, giving him information that no human in history had had up to that point and had him write it down and made sure he wrote it down correctly for the good of the people. And so Moses took this information that he got from God and wrote it down and it ended up in your Bible. That's where we get Genesis from. This is the testimony of Almighty God given to Moses, a reliable and true prophet who was preserved by the Holy Spirit to ensure that everything that he wrote down was exactly the way God wanted it to be said. It was exactly true to history. And also, in addition, it has been preserved accurately through time, over 3,000 years. If Moses wrote this in 1400 B.C., that means it's over 3,000 years old, this account. Yet it remains unchanged. It remains preserved. It's all intact. It is true. It is reliable. That is the confidence that a Christian can go to the Bible with. You don't need to be ashamed or embarrassed or apologetic or make excuses when you're reading Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 or when you have to explain it or teach it to somebody else. You can have confidence that this is the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord. That needs to be said up front. That was Moses' attitude towards the revelation he got from God. After Moses wrote this, all the prophets that followed Moses believed Genesis literally in the Old Testament. Many of them made comments on what Moses had written. They took him literally at face value as a prophet of God. And they lived by it and they lived accordingly. And even in the days of Jesus, the apostles of Jesus, all the Jews in Jesus' day took Genesis, the whole book, literally at face value. They lived by it and according to it, without apology. Jesus himself, the greatest rabbi of all, God in the flesh, read Genesis, knew Genesis, taught on Genesis as a rabbi, preached on it, and took it literally. Every time in the four Gospels, you see Jesus making an, a direct reference to Genesis or an allusion to Genesis. It is implied or clearly understood that he was understanding it literally. The people who lived, the amazing events that happened like creation out of nothing, creation within six days, a universal flood, Entire cities being consumed in an instant by the fire of God. These are the things that Jesus made reference to out of the book of Genesis, and he clearly believed it to be true. That's why we can have confidence in the word. We were not there. We can only really, ultimately comes down to you either believe it by faith or you don't. You reject it. And there are those, unfortunately, in the church who would say, well, don't take Genesis Literally, don't take it at face value. You can't read it, you know, historically. You have to consider it metaphorical and allegorical and 
That, that's a very common view. So we are going to be tempted with that. Some of you may even be in that camp where that's how you think we need to read Genesis. I can understand an unbeliever doing that. But somebody who's truly born again with the Spirit of God in them. If, you, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. And as you read God's Scripture that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, then the Spirit of God who lives in you is going to affirm the truth of the Word that He inspired. Really, so the, the Spirit of God is there to help you to understand God's Word properly the way it was given and intended by God. So we take it at face value. We take it historically. This is what God said. And we start with point number one is the proclamation in verse 20. The proclamation, there's three main points there, is the proclamation, that's verse 20. And then we'll look at the propagation, that's verse 21. And then the perpetuation is the last two verses. But first, the proclamation, and that's uh, the phrase there, beginning of verse 20, then God said. So then, okay, we just saw what happened on day one, day two, day three, day four. Take those literally. Specific things happened. And then there's a sequence. There's an order. It's chronological. This really happened. Then God said. The next thing that happened is God said. That's the proclamation. That's what I mean by proclamation. God proclaimed. God verbally gave an edict. God spoke. God spoke truth. The truth that God spoke we call His Word. That's the proclamation. God said. And this has been how God has been creating all throughout the first week. Every significant event that is made or created or brought into existence on each day is brought about by the power of God's Word, by His proclamation, by His divine edict verbally spoken. He just speaks and it comes into being. Absolutely amazing. He's a divine, supernatural, amazing, awesome God. Some would say, well, that's not very scientific, that God can speak into existence something that did not exist in a moment, in a time, in an instant. Well, that's true. From a human point of view, that is not scientific. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. And God can do miracles. And I, that comforts my soul. I hope it comforts yours as well. I want a Savior that is supernatural. I want a Savior that is totally sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient and can, can do the unthinkable and the unbelievable and that which can't be replicated by man. And that is our great and awesome God. That's why He's called the Almighty God all throughout Scripture. He is Almighty. This is absolutely amazing. He said and it came to be. So this is how he's creating. He's creating through the power of his word. He did this on day one, verse three. Let there be light. God said, let there be light. Boom, instantly there was light. Day two, verse six. God said, power of his word, let there be an expanse. And he created the sky and the atmosphere instantaneously by the power of his word. Day three, he did the same thing, verse nine. And God said, or then God said, let there be dry land. And then on that day, by the power of his word, God created land. Sea, plants. Day four, same thing, verse 14. Then God said, let there be luminaries in the sky. Sun, moon, and stars created by the powerful, instantaneous word of Almighty God. And he does the same thing here. Verse 20, then God said. So every day is introduced by a new thing that God is making or creating, and he's doing it by the power of his word. So, then God said, then God said, is being repeated with each day and each thing that is created. Here, then God said in verse 20, God creates birds and fish. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. And it was so. 
instantaneously as he spoke it, it became a reality. God is creating by the power of his word. He'll do the same thing on day six. It doesn't deviate from that reality. He will create the culmination of his creation simply by the power of his spoken word, the divine word of God, the proclamation from the creator. Verse 24, on day six, God will say, then God said, and let the earth bring forth living creatures. So he creates land, animals, and creatures by the power of his word. Day six is unique because it's two times that refrain is repeated, then God said. Prior to that, it was just, then God said one time on each day. But on day six, day six is unique. Then God said, he creates all land creatures. And then in verse 26, then God said, then he's going to create the apex of his creation. That's humanity. And he does it by the power of his word. So God brings all things into being by the power of his word. And that's why the writer of Hebrews, whoever that apostle was or an associate of an apostle who wrote divine inspired scripture uh, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, we keep reading that every week because we need to be reminded of it. Chapter 11, verse 3, where it says, we know, we understand. We Christians believe that God created the cosmos or all things by the power of his word so that that which is not has come into being. God created out of nothing. It's called ex nihilo, out of nothing. Things didn't evolve over eons of time. Things came into a being in a moment of time exactly when God declared it to be so. By the power of his word, we believe that. It is significant that that statement is made in Hebrews 11, which is highlighting and accentuating the virtue of faith. What is faith? Faith is taking God at his word. It is a supernatural transaction. We can't do it on a human level. Faith is actually a gift from God. God enables us to believe in him. God enables us to have faith in him in response to his revelation and to his word. And so this commentary about how all things came into being is appropriately situated in Hebrews chapter 11, that whole chapter about faith. Here are all these dear saints throughout the ages who believed God in his word simply by faith. And they believed amazing, supernatural, mind-boggling things about God, including the greatest of all, that he created all things out of nothing. That is awesome. So that needs to be our attitude, our paradigm, our approach, our hermeneutic, the lens by which we read Genesis. We can't limit God. Although we're tempted to today because of all that we hear from the so-called scientific world. I know that's a challenge. I know it's a struggle. But we just press on. So the proclamation, God creates birds and fish by the power of his word. Then God said. One more comment about then God said. So... You can trace all throughout the Bible, God said, God said, God said how he does things. He creates by the power of his word. He gives revelation to his prophets by the power of his word. That's why the prophets, thousands of times, it says, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. That's the most common refrain repeated by a prophet all throughout the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord, synonymous with it. God said, God said, this is happening. This is going to happen. This is how things will end. Thus God said, the power of his word. It's miraculous. So God began world history with his word. God preserves all of history with the power of his word. And appropriately so, God will culminate all history with the power of his spoken word. How's history going to end? We know it's going to end by the power of his word as he ushers in the culmination of world history according to his will. And we see that particularly in Revelation 19, the end of the age. 
when the Lord Jesus Christ will come at the end of the age. And John has a vision of what it's going to look like. The Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead in a resurrection body, a warrior, all-powerful, the supernatural God-man, resurrected, come back from life. And John sees him in the sky, and he's coming on a white horse. He's a warrior. He's the warrior of God. He has many names. He has a sword coming out of his mouth. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His hair is white like wool. And he's coming down to planet Earth. He's going to land in Jerusalem. He's going to reign as king. He's going to culminate history. He's going to fulfill all the unfulfilled promises of the Old Testament. And how does he do all this? By the power of his word. Because John says in Revelation 19, 11 and following, and his name, whoever this is on the white horse, his name is the word of God. And how does he accomplish his will? By his spoken word, the sword that comes out of his mouth. What is that? That is truth that the Lord Jesus speaks. He speaks and it comes into reality. The power of God's word. Reminds me of the miracle that he did in the Gospels when the the Father said to Jesus, just say the word and he will be healed. Just say the word. That man knew the power of God's word. So the proclamation. Now, I want to look at a little translation. If you've got your Bible there, depending upon your English translation, it could be a little confusing. Those of you who have a King James Bible are going to be the most confused on this verse. Sometimes King James has the best translation of certain verses, and sometimes it doesn't. And I would say on this verse, verse 20, the King James Bible, uh, you can see that it's a good four or 500 years old, and the translation needs to be updated based on the exact Hebrew words that the English Bibles are trying to translate. It's kind of interesting on verse 20. So you got your major translations. The New American Standard, which I'm teaching out of. The ESV, which many of you have, the English Standard Version. That's a newer version that's decent. you got the King James Version. That's the oldest. Then the New King James Version, probably written in the 80s, update. Then you got the NIV, New International, and then the Net Bible. So there's one, two, three, four, five... Six different English translations, and not one of the six English translations translate verse 20 the same. So there's little nuances that are tweaked. So let me, and then I've got the the Hebrew translation. You've got the Living McManus Hebrew translation at the end. I want to give you right from Scripture, right from the Hebrew text, and you can just see the nuance, and you can see why some translations are maybe confused or cloud things to fully understand the significance. So here's the New American Standard says, Then God said, Let the waters team, T-E-E-M, team. When was the last time you actually used that word? I don't think I've ever used that word, team. Some of you might not even know what it means, but that's the New American Standard. Let the waters team with swarms of living creatures. Team. Then the King James Version says, Let the waters bring forth... That's a problem because the waters didn't bring forth. The waters did not create. God did. God brought forth. So that's misleading when it says let the waters bring forth. Because actually some ancient pagan religions actually believed that, that the water was powerful, a living deity, and created things. So that's not helpful, let the waters bring forth, because it doesn't say that. Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. So that could use some improvement. 
Uh, let me point out now the Hebrew translation, then I'll go back to a couple of others. Here's literally what the text says. It said, then God said, let the waters, swarming things, or sorry, let them swarm the waters with swarming things with life of the soul. That's literally what it says. And so the, the key I'm trying to get there is where he uses the word, the same word two times. It's let let the, let them swarm the waters swarming, swarm and swarming. It's the same Hebrew word, or a cognate. So the best English translation, I think, should have words that are the same and related, one a noun and one of kind of like a verb, and that's exactly what the ESV does. So here's what the ESV says, which I think is excellent. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. That's excellent. The NET Bible says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Same thing. And that's an excellent rendition of the Hebrew. It's being emphatic, and the word swarm is very specific. Uh, and you can look at all, trace all the usages of that verb swarm throughout the Old Testament. And there are two things that rise to the surface in terms of a common denominator of how that word swarm is used. It implies movement, rapid movement. Things that swarm move. But also attached to it, every time it's used, just about, is this idea of abundance or fullness. And I think both of those terms need to be understood in this term. So when he says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, he's talking about the fish or animals that live in the sea. And that was what God did. He created not just two fish, Mr. and Mrs. Fish, and they multiply. No, let the waters swarm. And it wasn't just two kinds. It was all kinds, countless kinds. And it was life as opposed to plants. Plants don't swarm because plants don't move. Inherent in the word for swarm is movement, rapid movement, continual movement, movement that animates life. And it's visible to the eye, and it is obvious. Swarm, moving, bustling. I think of when we went to New York for the first time recently. We were down on the streets of New York. All I could think of was the swarming and the bustling of life. And then you go into a quiet forest. There's no swarming and bustling. There's nothing but quietness, and nobody's moving. And trees aren't moving, unless you're Lord of the Rings. But anyway, so that's the difference. That's inherent in this word. Let things swarm in the waters, swarming with life. I think one of the best illustrations of that word, too, is that like a beehive. Bees, they swarm. They are moving. They are, and they're abundant because that word is inherent in it. This, this proliferation of the species along with its ongoing rapid movement. Kind of like this morning as I left my house and looked at my 40-gallon fish tank. And the fish, they weren't sleeping. They were moving. Because what else do they have to do? Not much. And that's what God says about the, the fish in the sea. So that translation, very important. Both those words, I think, need to be reflected in the English text. The NIV just uses one of the words, let the waters teem with living creatures. Not good because it just totally leaves out an entire word. So good job, ESV. Swarm with swarming things. By the way, it doesn't say fish because it's a big picture. It's many things that live in the sea. It doesn't say fish. People criticize the Bible for not being scientific. Yeah, your Bible says God created fish on day five and dolphins aren't fish. So your Bible has an error in it. Well, number one, the Bible doesn't say that dolphins are fish. Number two, the text actually doesn't say God created fish on day five. It says swarming things, swimming things, things that live in the water. Is a dolphin a thing that lives in the water? Yes. Even though it's not a fish, it lives in the water. Or another big dolphin, the killer whale. It's not a fish, but it lives in the water. 
and porpoises. They're not fish, but they live in the water. And plankton live in the water. And all the, just the variety, he created all the variety. He did it all in one day, all at the same time. Things that move and live in the water. And especially when you go down deep into the water and you see those school of fish move and they're rapid and they move quickly. And there's an abundance of them, a proliferation of them. That is captured by that word swarm. As a matter of fact, just from what we know, the little we know about the sea and all the living creatures in the sea, they say that there are over 25,000 species of different kinds of fish in the sea. Over 25,000 different kinds of species alone today. That's mind-boggling. But it speaks of the variety of God, the creativity, the diversity of God, the immensity of God. Absolutely amazing. Well, how did Moses get all those fish on the ark? Some critic might say. And you could say one of two things. Well, in a fishbowl. Because, or number two, the Bible doesn't say he brought fish on the ark because he didn't have to. As a matter of fact, you read through the text, it doesn't say, and all the fish died, and all the fish died, and all the swimming, it doesn't. It says all flesh died, all flesh died, all flesh died. All that has, get this, the breath of life, the nephesh, the breath of life, the soulish creatures, and it delineates them. The birds after their kind, all living creatures, cattle, and all humanity. So it defines exactly what died. It didn't say all the fish and living creatures died. They didn't need to be preserved on the ark because they were just loving that water. It's kind of interesting. Well, why did God make all these fish? All kinds of varieties. 25,000 different kinds of species of fish? Well, he didn't make all 25,000 species that day necessarily because when he blesses them, he says he created the, we'll just call it the fish and the birds. But after that, he says, he gives them a blessing. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea. So they didn't necessarily fill the waters entirely all over planet Earth on day five. But he did probably create just a, an incredible variety of kind of swimming fish-like creatures under the sea. And then they were blessed by God to populate and perpetuate. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. So they could fill the oceans. They could fill the void. They can get rid of the bohu of chapter 1, verse 2. Amazing variety. Some of you have been scuba diving and just see the amazing variety of swimming things under the sea. And it's just awesome. If you're a Christian... Uh, it should just remind you of how awesome our creator is and how diverse and amazing, how he made these things to bless humanity. Keep that in mind. All the way up to day six, all these things that God is doing, one of the main things he's doing is to bless humanity. So bless humanity with fish and things that swim in the sea? Absolutely. And we are blessed by that. What was Jesus' favorite, one of his favorite meals? is fish. His disciples were fishermen. So God intends to bless us with all of his creation he does that accordingly it's kind of interesting to think that in the future in the new heavens and the new earth in genesis revelation 21 and 22 when we are in heaven in the eternal state with the the beautiful jerusalem city coming down when there's no more curse and no more evil and no more satan no more sin and it's just nothing but glorious and just resplendent glory of God's literal presence with the Lord Jesus Christ, with all the holy angels, with all the redeemed saints of all the ages. That's reality. That is coming. That is future. That's the new heavens and the new earth. And it says there is no more sea. Seventy percent of the earth today is covered by the sea and things that live in it. It's kind of interesting to think that there will be no more sea. What's going to happen to all these living creatures? Well, maybe they won't be there. Maybe fish are for this lifetime, for our benefit to make us think of our wonderful, amazing creator. 
We don't know. Just a thought. So that's the proclamation. As God brings fish and birds into creation. Oh, uh, one other observation in verse 20. So we've got these swarming things that, and the category of them isn't fish, it's things that swim and live in the water. Then the other category of things are things that fly. So in verse 20 where it says birds, birds is not literally in your text, in your Hebrew text. Birds is in your English Bible is in verse 20, 21, and 22, but your Hebrew text actually doesn't say bird. The literal word is winged creature or flying creature. Because if you trace that word throughout the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, it refers to many things other than animals called birds. The emphasis is on wings. For example, angels are described this way. Angels aren't birds, but they're described with this word. So they're winged creatures. And we know that angel, there's a different kinds of angels do have wings. The seraphim and the cherubim have many wings. Locusts are also said to have wings using this word. Armies are said to have wings, as it speaks of having wings and flying, moving quickly. Armies, human armies. So that's metaphorical. Also used for that. So a, a better translation is, uh, God says, and let the flying things or the winged things fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Not birds. Winged things. Things that fly. Which in terms of your taxonomy of animals, broadens the scale. Because if we were to just say birds, then there's a lot of winged creatures that fly you wouldn't put under that category, according to modern science and their taxonomy. They try to point out, oh, your Bible's got an error in it. Well, where's that? Well, look at Leviticus uh, chapter 11. See, your Bible is out of date, unscientific, doesn't know proper basic taxonomy of biological life. Oh, really, where? Well, look at uh, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 13. It says, these, moreover, Moses says to the people of Israel, God says, here's some laws you need to abide by. Here's some eating rules. You have rules, eating rules that you have to abide by. And when it comes to birds, here are your eating rules. So verse 13, Leviticus chapter 11, these moreover you shall detest among the birds. Detest doesn't mean you don't like them. Detest is emphasizing refrain from them. And the category in your English Bible says birds. You shall detest among the birds. And then it lists kinds of birds or categories of birds that are abhorrent. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon, the raven, after its kind, after its kind. The ostrich, the owl, the seagull, the hawk, after its kind. The little owl, the great owl, the white owl, the pelican, the, the carrion, the vulture, the stork, the heron, the hoopoe. And then in verse 19, the bat. Whoa, wait a minute. Verse 13 said the birds. Verse 19 said bat. Everybody knows bats aren't birds. Bats are mammals. They're warm-blooded. They don't lay eggs. They have three weird bones in their ear and whatever else is supposed to define a mammal. They're not birds. And God says, yeah, yeah they are actually because the word isn't bird. It's winged flying creatures. Is a bat a winged flying creature? Yeah, it is. So that's God's taxonomy. Different than modern-day taxonomy. So just wanted to point that out. Take note of that. So the variety of flying winged creatures is absolutely amazing that God made it in the very beginning of these flying creatures. Today they say there's over 15,000 different species of birds, technically, which would not include the bat because they tell us a bat is not a bird, but I'm going to say a bat belongs here because it's a winged flying creature. 
But today, over 15,000 different species of birds, and many they think that we haven't even discovered yet or at least named in the science lab. But again, God didn't create all of them at the same time. He did create them after their kind, after their kind. We'll see that in point number two. Let's go on to point number two after the proclamation. And that's verse 21. And that's the propagation. God fills the sky and the waters with life. Verse 21. So God created. God said, God decreed it, and then he created immediately following. And he did this on day five. God created, just to point out the word for created. There, there's different words for create. Three different words for create in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. Bara is the word for created. God created. Only four times is that used in this narrative. Genesis 1, 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. Bara talked about how it's something only God does. Seems that he does it out of nothing by the power of his word. In this text, every time God does some kind of creative significant thing, he uses the word bara. And day five is unique in terms of what God created for a couple of reasons. Day five is the first time God actually created life, creaturely life. You might say, well, no, what about the plants? Are they living creatures? The Old Testament never considers plants living creatures. The Old Testament never says that plants, quote, die. The New Testament is clear, Ezekiel 18 is clear, that death entered into the human life as a result of sin and disobedience. So when God made Adam and Eve and God told Adam, you can eat from all of the trees, don't eat from this one. In the day that you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. In the day that Adam ate from that tree in disobedience, the death sentence kicked into his body, his biology, his physiology. He literally began to die. The clock began to tick. And God cursed the earth and all that was in it as a result. And so that actually extended out to animal life as well. The entire earth was cursed. And so I believe that death never entered into human life or earthly life until Adam and Eve disobeyed, sinned, and then death was a consequence or a result. So as we're going through Genesis chapter 1, these six days, there is no, there's no death. There's no animal death. There's no bird death. There's no fish death. There's no human death. I would even say along with that that nobody's eaten somebody else. Animals, Adam and Eve, are not eating meat at this point. They were vegetarians all the way up until the days of Noah. That's clear from Genesis chapter 9. They ate plants. God said that. We'll see that when we get to day 6. He said, here's your menu, by the way. Just eat plants. Just as I also gave the animals. So animals were also vegetarian. So Mr. Shark isn't chasing down Mr. Guppy. They got along. They were buddies. They played together. So there is no death. Death entered in after sin and God's curse. Well, what about plants? They're living creatures, and they died. No, they didn't, because the Bible doesn't say that plants died. God said plants were for food, and God never calls plants living creatures. And the specific word uh, that God uses to define living creatures, that is birds, fish, land animals, and human beings, is the word nephesh. N-E-P-H-E-S-H, nephesh, nephesh. It's a common word all throughout the Old Testament, nephesh. It is the life of God. It's what defines a soulish, soulish creature, that which has a soul. Dogs have souls. Cats have souls of some sort. They're soulish creatures. They have life, nephesh. And so that's what's going on in verse 21. God created the great... So let's go ahead and look at the, prop, uh, sorry, the propagation of these animals. Verse 21, God created bara. 
So he creates animals or life that is unique for the first time. Life that is unique by virtue of the nefesh that he gives it. These soulish creatures come into existence for the first time. And it is unique because God has to create a soul out of nothing by the power of his word. And that's what he does. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Every living creature. Actually, that was in verse 20 where it says living creature. That's where the word nefesh is used. Soulish creatures. The Hebrew word for nefesh most literally in its etymology can be translated as that which breathes. Respiratory beings. But then later on, like in the book of Leviticus, it defines it even further, saying that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So creatures that have blood, respiratory, but most importantly, things that God gave a soul, which means they are conscious creatures. So fish are conscious creatures. They're not self-conscious, but they're conscious creatures. They're aware of their surrounding to whatever degree allowed them to be so. Some, sometimes it's through instinct, but fish are conscious of their surroundings you go up to a creek and you want to go fishing and there's a trout and you go down and you see your shadow he reacts he moves conscious creatures dogs are conscious creatures they react they listen sometimes they obey sometimes cats well they never listen but they're still conscious creatures so all animals conscious creatures human beings conscious creatures human beings unique among the conscious creatures because they're made in the image of god which includes that they are self-conscious we'll talk more about that But these are respiratory conscious creatures that have a soul. They are precious. That's why Proverbs 12 talks about how precious animals are and that a good and righteous man will take care of his animal and not abuse his animal. And that's why it references in Matthew uh, 5, 6, Matthew 10, where it talks about Jesus cares for the sparrow. He knows when they die. He knows how to provide for their needs. God cares for the life of these soulish creatures all across the world, caring most of all for every human being that is made in his image. So, hence the unique usage of the word bara there. First time that soulish creatures are being made. Verse 21, and God created the great sea monsters, every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged uh, bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good, the propagation. So, Uh, God declares it to be so. He creates them, and they exist. And notice, they produce after their kind. So that's an important uh, phrase in verse 21. We saw this regarding plants. After their kind. So fish after their kind. Winged birds after their kind. What does that mean? This is like a taxonomy that God is giving, that Moses is giving. Because when people ask, well, how did God get all those animals... Like these birds, how did God get all those birds on the ark? After all, today we know there are over 15,000 different species of birds, and they need a mommy and a daddy, so that's 30,000 different birds on the ark alone. How in the world did Noah get 30,000 different birds on the ark? Well, he didn't have to. So that's an extreme. He only had to get after their kind on the ark. Not all species, but just after their kind. For example... Owls. Did you know that there's like 230 different species of owl? So Noah didn't need all 230 species of owl. He just had to get Mr. Owl and Mrs. Owl, maybe. And God gave them the DNA within those two to produce all kinds of owls. Kind of like breeds among dogs. 
But that's what the word after its kind means. It's very specific, after its kind, according, literally according to its order, according to its class. So God didn't need to create 15,000 birds. Maybe it was just orders of birds. And we kind of see that in Leviticus 11 where he had 20 different orders of birds that he mentioned. We know that there were more than two birds on the ark because when Moses opened the window, he let out a raven. So it was probably Mr. and Mrs. Raven. And then he let out a dove, Mr. and Mrs. Dove. So there's two right there. Plus, God also told him to take seven different kinds of clean and unclean animals. Kinds, after their kind. So that's what Noah did. After their kind, after their kind, that is repeated, after their kind. That's how animals reproduce, and that talks about their variety and their propagation around the world. They produce after their kind, which, by the way, is a limit in terms of how you could reproduce your species or your kind. You can't cross-pollinate between species, kinds, or orders. In other words, a cat, given uh, a zillion years, will never turn into a dog. It ain't going to happen. God has fixed that because cats will only, or felines will only produce after their kind. A mouse isn't going to become a cat. I don't care how many zillions of years you tack onto it. Yesterday I was watching a, video, a YouTube video of a specialist in evolution, Darwinian evolution, and he said at the very beginning of the video that, as he's going to explain how evolution worked and all the taxonomies, that we all come from a, a, a common ancestor. Whether you're a person or a monkey or an elephant or a rat or a plankton. Isn't that special? And I thought, no, not really. That's kind of a sad thought. It's also wrong because God created all these living creatures after their kind. It's amazing how he did that. And then Noah was able to get all those onto the ark after their kind. Very manageable. So manageable that they tell us that of those 15,000 species of birds, there are only about 28 orders of birds. Only 28? Okay, that's uh, about 60 birds on the ark. And maybe you get them on the, the younger side. Of, they're a little smaller. That's very manageable in light of how big the ark was. So God is going to propagate these two creatures. Let's go on to number three, and that's the last two verses. And that's the perpetuation of birds and animals. What's one of the axioms of Darwinian evolution is called the survival of the fittest, Right? So the stronger rises up, overpowers the younger ones. The younger ones are left behind and go extinct, and that's kind of guaranteed. So in other words, there is no preservation or perpetuation over time of certain species, animals, and living creatures. As a matter of fact, there could be all kinds of living creatures that existed that we don't know even existed. We don't even know what to call them because they're not in our taxonomy. They're not birds. They're not animals. They're not fish. They're not humans. They're not insects because they don't exist anymore. They just poof, went into the total non-existence, whatever those kinds of creatures were. And God says in his word, no, that is not true. Because it's not going to be the survival of the fittest. God is going to guarantee the survival of all of it, all of it, after their kind. Birds, fish, even plants, but specifically soulish creatures are going to be preserved over time since the beginning. In other words, with the blessing of verse 22 and, yeah, 22, where God blesses the plants and the birds, He's going to guarantee their perpetuity, their existence throughout time. In other words, there are no species of birds today or fish today that didn't exist during week one because God guaranteed their preservation. Now, some animals do go extinct, like the dodo bird and so maybe some dinosaurs and other things that have gone extinct. But on the whole, these classes and kinds of animals are going to be preserved by God throughout time, and they're even going to make it through the flood, and they did. They made it through the ice age that followed shortly after the flood, 
they made it into uh, modern times, even despite man's industrialization of society that is not always friendly to fish and birds. And they've even survived, believe it or not, global warming up to this point. And I think they're going to make it through because God guaranteed it, their preservation and perpetuation until he has a different plan at the end of the age. So let's look at the perpetuation or the preservation of these amazing creatures. Verse 22 says, God bless them, saying, God bless them. God is going to do this to humanity. Uh, God blesses Adam and Eve. God blesses Noah and his family. Just before he pronounces on them, you need to propagate, you need to perpetuate, you need to procreate with one another to preserve your lineage. And you do it with my blessing. This is a good thing. Not only is it a good thing, it is a guarantee by Almighty God He is the Creator. He's not just the Creator, He is also the Sustainer. And this is a, just a promise from God the Creator that He will sustain His creation. We don't need to be worried and panic that, well, all the birds are going to go into non-existence because of man's existence here and his industrialization. And man is the enemy of the planet. No, he's not. But we hear that from the world. That's a different world view. Everything would be great if we just get rid of humanity. Some people literally believe that. It's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. All these creatures are created for humanity. But God's going to preserve them. And that's why he says in verse 22, blesses them saying, be fruitful and multiply. By the way, this is the first blessing in the Bible. The Bible is full of blessings. So this is the first one. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let winged creatures multiply on the earth. And the preservation is guaranteed and will continue day after day after day. Verse 23, there was evening and there was morning, day five. So this really happened within a 24-hour period. That God created all these amazing swimming creatures or fish, all these amazing birds after their kind, and he did it all within a 24-hour period as he's about to begin the next day. These are literal days. These are real days. These are probably 24-hour days. And now he has the sun, moon, and stars to, to gauge and manage these 24-hour days for the good of humanity up to this point. Absolutely amazing. So this is just a great reminder of where we are in God's place. So next week, we'll actually begin looking at day six, which is the culmination of God's creation, where he creates land creatures, and then the apex of all of his creation, the crown jewel of his creation, is humanity. Very important, we'll talk about it, and how everything else was created to serve humanity. And with that comes responsibility. Man is commissioned to be a faithful and good steward of all that God has entrusted to him. And that is also true of us today, especially as Christians. We should be the best stewards of all of creation. We should be the best steward. We should be the best environmentalists. Can you handle that word? Because it's God's creation. He's given us guidelines that are very specific about how to be good stewards of all that he's entrusted to our care. And so anytime today, maybe you've got a, a parakeet at home or a bird or maybe you open your front door and a pigeon flies in like happened to us recently. Or actually, it was probably a robin. Or maybe you have a fish tank at home. Or maybe you go to the aquarium. Or maybe you see things that swim at the sea and in the ocean. As a Christian, those things should remind you of very specific truths, that God is awesome, He is the Creator, He is diverse, He is immense, He is miraculous. His Word is true. These things are for our good, for His glory, and a responsibility of stewardship in keeping with this word comes with that. So next time you see the plankton, the water skipper, the guppy, the eel, the manta ray, the octopus, the tuna, the shark, the dolphin, the orca, the blue whale, 
the Tanis. That is, that's the great sea creature in chapter 1. That's like a dragon in the sea, maybe a prehistoric or a dinosaur. Or the dragon, in the words of Jeremiah, that lived in the sea. Or the Leviathan that Job mentioned, huge, massive creature that lived in the sea that was feared by all. Probably a dinosaur. Or the little leafy sea dragon. Those are all things that live in the sea. Or the things that are in the air. The hummingbird, the owl, the chicken, the turkey. You getting hungry? Chicken, turkey, dove, the vulture, the crane, the parrot, the peacock, the penguin, the bat, the dodo, the cuckoo, the toucan, the warbler, the satanic nightjar. That's a scary bird. The, ra- the lazy Christicola. The 40-spotted Partolode. The screaming chakalaka. I like that one the best. That's a real bird. The screaming chakalaka. Or the pterosaurus. The ancient flying winged creature that went into existence. Known as a historic flying dinosaur. All these speak of God's glory. With that, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and the privilege to come worship with your saints, also to learn from your word. Thank you for the reminder of what an amazing creator you are, all the, all the birds that you created, all that swims in the sea that you created, and have really entrusted to our, our stewardship and care. Help us as Christians to be the best examples of what that means. And thank you for the great reminder that your word is powerful. You create things out of nothing. And the greatest thing in reality that you've done with the power of your word is declaring justification of a sinner who can become a saint by believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.